You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, more sanctions, the U.S. upping the pressure on Putin and those closest to him. We will bring you the latest from the White House. Plus, how the war in Ukraine is affecting its world-renowned tech sector. We're going to talk to two engineers who've been helping their employees stationed across Ukraine about how it's going down. And more than a billion dollars in losses for Grab this last quarter. I'll speak with President Ming Ma about how he plans to turn it around. Despite the relentless onslaught of Russian forces, Ukraine's vital tech sector is still operating for clients around the world. While Ukraine's own tech leaders are helping support the war effort and working around the clock to keep their own employees safe, I want to bring in two of those tech leaders now. Lasha Antadaz, the co-founder of the NFT API platform Rarify, as well as Pavel Kravchenko, founder of the blockchain, blockchain Expertise Center Distributed Lab, who just helped some of his team members get out of the city in Kharkiv. Pavel I know you are in Western Ukraine right now. So you're holding up your phone in front of your face uh, where you are hunkered down. I would love for you to, to talk to us about what you're experiencing there. I know you're in a city called Uzgrut, which has been quieter till now. How are you doing and what is the situation there? Yeah, the situation is, is okay. Uh, but, you know, seven days ago I woke uh, from the rockets and explosions in Kyiv. So that was like an experience. And still, like, big part of my team is experiencing this in Kharkiv. Uh, the Kharkiv was all over the news because Russians are demolishing the city. So today, yesterday, tomorrow we are, like, evacuating the team and also people who are, in, like, in big need. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about what you're experiencing. Obviously, my heart goes out to you and your team. Lasha, I know you left Ukraine for safety in Georgia a few weeks ago, but you still have almost two dozen employees and developers still in the Ukraine. What are they telling you right now? So definitely, uh, as, as you can see, I'm trying to manage it from outside of country and 
it's a kind of a challenge as well. But I, I want to like actually thank the community internally and Pavel and his team because we, there's a huge coordination among the the developer community and in terms of like even evacuating and living and coordinating uh, this process. And overall, what we've seen inside uh, is a huge help because the chats that were used previously for inviting the greatest speakers in Ukraine and really showing what we were building are now kind of coordination chats in terms of like who needs what and uh, that's a huge help, especially for me who's outside and trying to manage all that and uh, get hand, uh, on hand. Pavel, I know you're working around the clock to help your employees get to safer places. How hard is it to get out? Talk to us about the logistical challenges that you're dealing with. I know they are, first of all, leaving everything they know. It is incredibly costly. Uh, they won't have access necessarily to a consistent supply of food or, or medication. Uh, basically, there are a few challenges. You have the shortage of like uh, taxi drivers, uh, so anybody who can deliver anything. And the prices went up like 50 times. So for normal people, it's just impossible to pay. Uh, for IT people, it's still possible, but it's a very expensive operation. Uh, and plus, the uh, martial laws, like uh, you you cannot stay outside after 6 or in some cities after 4. And uh, yeah, your logistics need to be finished before, so the day starts at 6 a.m. Um, yeah, in some places, like one developer just called me, said I need a yeah, way out because our home has no electricity has no heat has no gas uh, because it was yeah bombed and yeah uh, so he needs to escape tomorrow uh, so this type of stuff we have right now like Kharkiv is under like heavy heavy fire uh, so there are some other cities that are even worse um, like Mariupol and Kherson but uh, yeah Kharkiv is a very big city it's like one and a half million and uh, approximately like 50,000 developers were there so the business is obviously disrupted, but our clients are supporting us. They are sending us uh, money to donate uh, because we're donating to people who, who are in need, for whom like $30 is like a fortune currently to buy like bread. But yeah, not everything you can buy with money. That's, uh, that's the truth that comes when you are in war. The money doesn't save you. Lasha, I, 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 I know that you are working to support your developers on, on the ground, and there has been an incredible uh, means of internal communication in the way that you've all come together. How are you organizing? You know, how, how often is this a minute-by-minute, second-by-second thing? Well, like, the first thing that comes is, like, every morning you wake up and try to figure out what happens. So this is the, the most kind of... Uh, uh, strange moment when you wake up and you don't know what happened over the uh, hours that you were asleep and trying to like individually and into the group, group chats find out who's how who the bombs that were seen like how close they were to the places they spent the night and this coordination is like uh, 
I don't know, a couple of times over the day. And especially when somebody leaves and tomorrow, like some of the developers are going to leave it, it's a kind of challenge. So is it going to happen? What time will they be able to get to the other city? So there's a lot of risks and uncertainty, and I'm trying to keep the momentum of um, controlling and understanding who's at what stage. Pavel, I understand some of your employees have expressed wanting to fight for your country. Are they taking up arms? Are you being asked to fight? Actually, there are lots of people who want to fight. And if you don't have an experience, they will not let you. So, like, uh, yeah, many companies were kind of afraid that their people will be drawn to army. But actually, yeah, that's very little amount of unexperienced people uh, will go there. But uh, yes, they kind of, it's a very patriotic like spirit here because it's our land and they just uh, bombed that. And uh, surprisingly, like Kharkiv was always considered like, you know, they, they would speak Russian um, and uh, it was kind of friendly city. And now they kind of, Russia demolishes it like more than other cities. and. That's kind of made people like wonder, like that uh, what they supported in the past was really kind of not good. So yeah, that's uh, therefore more and more people are willing to uh, to go to the army. And I know many people who come from abroad uh, to fight, uh, like Ukrainians that came from abroad. So that's the situation basically. And so everybody's wife... helping. Like I have Facebook. Your wife, I, I understand, is there with you and, and isn't leaving the country, but she's making supplies for the army. Can you tell us about that yep. decision, deciding to stay rather than leave when leaving could be safer? Like we're all in the same boat. So like if you leave your home once, then you leave your home twice, then the third time, so that's, that will never end. You know, like the apartment that were bombed uh, day before yesterday, I was living in the same area in two apartments. And one of them I sold to the guy who moved from Donetsk. And Donetsk was already, yeah, <laughs> heavily uh, destroyed uh, when the separatists came there. And now like Kharkiv. So like, that's the fate. If you move another time, then they'll come and take something from there. Like, uh, surprisingly, we have a Georgian, uh, like Lasha here, and Georgia experienced this twice with Abkhazia and uh, South Ossetia. So, like, um, yeah, it will never stop if you don't fight. Um, the Ukrainian government has been so crypto forward, accepting crypto donations, and I know that you have experience in, in blockchain and, and NFT technology. Lasha, you know, some of the way that the Ukrainian government has been able to accept these donations, uh, to, to come up with this idea to auction off digital assets has been pretty incredible. What is it about Ukraine and the deep bench of tech talent there, like yourself, that's enabled the country to do this. Definitely. So Ukraine is is one of the greatest countries and people who are like tech savvy, especially into so-called Web3 and blockchain space. And especially Pavel, his team and like the entire network crypto community, as we call each other, that has been like super strong, like 
both like in building pro, pro products for like on a global level and really outsourcing. It has been the massive force of outsource for the Western companies to build out this new web. But I'm like, I can proudly say that the same community is like building and fighting and the same time and we're going to continue doing until we win and the crypto has like become like a widely used thing even before the war and now it's helping a lot to fund the fund the uh, campaigns and uh, fund uh, the people who are in need for that and the uh, government like really enabling the crypto donations and uh, uh, the community assisting that so more than 30 million as I know by the last um, uh, statistics have been mobilized over that and that shows like how big the crypto community and support from the outside is of that particular uh, space and industry. Well, it has been incredibly powerful to hear your story, to hear how you are fighting to keep your employees safe and continuing to work and run your companies. Thank you for taking the time to share your stories with us, Lasha, Antaz, and Pavel Kravchenko. We hope that you stay safe. All right. Coming up, we're going to head to Singapore. I'm going to speak with the president of Grab, Ming Ma, about how the company continues to push towards profitability as the pandemic drags on. That is next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The effects of the pandemic still being felt. Grab, Southeast Asia's ride-hailing and delivery giant, reporting mounting losses in its latest earnings results, losing more than a billion dollars for the quarter. Join me now, Ming Ma, president of Grab. Ming, uh, you are, of course, based in Singapore, which just announced rare unilateral sanctions on Russia. What do you think of Singapore's response so far and how the world community is really rallying against Russia? Hey, Emily. First of all, thank you for, uh, very much for having me on here. Um, it, it goes without saying that our hearts um, just absolutely go out to everyone that's been affected. Um, we do have a few grabbers that's also been affected in the region, and we're doing everything that we can. Um, I would say you're absolutely right. The COVID impact has been severe. Um, we're seeing potential impacts uh, from a global basis. And, and frankly, we're, and despite that, I think we feel very um, happy with a lot of the performance that we've achieved. Um, in spite of all the city lockdowns, in spite of all the macro turmoil, I think 2021 was our best year ever. Uh, we exceeded guidance um, on GMV. Revenues grew by 44%, and we delivered against our EBITDA uh, guidance. Um, in terms of Southeast Asia, it's clear that our super app strategy is working. 
um, our users are spending more. Uh, customers from our 2016 cohort are now spending close to five times what they spent when they first joined Grab. And our retention rates are now up to 74% for customers that use three or more services from Grab. Um, we are generating solid margins and mobility, and we are focused on building value over the long term um, and just really unlocking the tremendous market opportunity that we see here. And we are convicted that the position that we've taken in our strategy as the only regional super app is the right one for us. How are you thinking about delivery and ride-hailing workers in Southeast Asia at this time? Many of them are part-time workers. They have little rights. You know, how are you factoring that into the future of the company? Well, the, the key for us has always been around how do we create true economic empowerment for micro-entrepreneurs uh, across Southeast Asia. And these micro-entrepreneurs certainly include our driver partners, includes many of the restaurant partners uh, that we work with in food delivery. And, and the key for us is how do we provide the largest income opportunities for drivers, for merchants um, over time? And the key aspect for that is executing on our super app strategy. It's about cross-sell, um, selling multiple services to our consumers and over time generating increased wallet share for our consumers. And I think that's the best way for us to continue empowering um, economic stability for the region here. Now, the war in Ukraine is only escalating. As we've been discussing, there's concern it could lead to rising food prices. It'll certainly make supply chain issues potentially worse. How is Grab potentially impacted by that and preparing for that? Yeah, well, we're obviously uh, monitoring the situation pretty closely. It's a little bit too early to see, uh, to really tell how the effects will ripple through Southeast Asia. Uh, we're monitoring gas prices. Um, oil prices as it relates to our drivers, because that certainly hits the driver P&Ls in a very direct way. We're also monitoring uh, food costs and the effects of inflation um, across uh, Southeast Asia. But if I just step back for a second, the, the real key for us as a platform is how do we provide the lowest cost services to our merchants, our drivers, and to our consumers? And ultimately, if we're able to do that, then I think the, the sustainability will be on the platform. I just want to give, give a quick example. Um, when you look at our total uh, segment-adjusted EBITDA margins, we've improved those by 50% from 2020 to 2021. Uh, from a minus 2% um, loss in 2020 to minus 1% in 2021. And I think a large part of that is by driving continued cost reductions in the platform, which ultimately we then share with all of our partners, restaurants, and drivers. All right. Mingma, president of Grab, thank you for joining us. We'll see how Grab continues to weather the COVID storm. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. It's estimated that more than a million refugees has left Ukraine as the war has now stretched into its second week. And it's a brutal one. Many fleeing to Poland, leaving behind a cloud of uncertainty on when they can return and what they will be returning to. Bloomberg's Aggie Cantrell is in Poland and spoke to those leaving it all behind. I saw a lot of damages, a lot of crashes, and I even just... I, I don't see my Kiev as it was earlier. 
At the main train station in Przemysl, a border town with Ukraine, Poland is experiencing an influx of refugees from the war just over the other side of their border. We're seeing people who've come from Kiev and Lvov and other parts of the country arrive in Poland, in the EU, and this is something that is happening in a lot of places around the European Union's borders with Ukraine. It was very, very frightened. We just here with my son and my husband stayed in Ukraine and trying to fight. I hope that he he will alive and uh, I hope that uh, he will come here. Uh, I uh, live uh, in Ukraine, my husband, and I uh, uh, come to Poland uh, with my daughter and with my friends. We are going to Germany today. And I don't know um, how many times we stay there. We have also heard about people who are not Ukrainian citizens but were living in the country at the time that the war began, discussing the fact that they found it harder to leave the country because they weren't Ukrainian. It was very, very challenging because I was not Ukrainian and so even the guys, they were pushing us and they were trying to stop us from entering the train and allowing the Ukrainians to go first. Although I'm from Africa, but I have a wife who is from Ukraine. First, when we arrived at the, the border of Ukraine, they took my wife and my child away and they told me to wait. So I stood, for, I stood there for about three more or four hours before they called us to come. It was really, really stressful. It took me two days to get to Poland. Like, leaving Ukraine is, was very, very, like, stressful, and I didn't want to leave Ukraine now because all my life is there. My child, everything is, like, we left everything in Ukraine. So I don't know from now, because if the war still continues in Ukraine, I don't know what will happen. And now they are telling us you can only stay 14 days here, and I don't know what to do. The UNHCR has said that any sort of discrimination against people from third countries would not be acceptable under the Geneva Convention, but that they haven't had confirmation of such things from the authorities. Here we're seeing people who get hot food and SIM cards in order to try and stay in contact with their families back home and also to try and see what their next steps are, whether they're going to remain in Poland or try and find a new life in some other part of the European Union, whether that be just for now or potentially more permanently. I hope that we will return soon because I didn't want to leave. I want, I want to be home. but. Unfortunately, such a situation. We are hoping that uh, it will uh, end soon. At this moment, I don't see the opportunity to return. Bloomberg's Aggie Cantrell there in Poland. Now I want to bring in Ali Partovi, the CEO of NIO, which just launched a new accelerator. I want to get to that in a moment. Um, Ali, with me here in the studio, I want to start actually by asking a little bit about your family history, because you grew up during a war in Iran. And I, I'm so curious, what is it like watching these images and seeing Ukraine under attack? 
Yeah, Emily, and thank you for having me here. Um, it's really tough. War, war is really terrible. And for me, it's personal because I, I was seven years old um, when uh, living in Iran when Iraq invaded us. And uh, for the next five years, you know, um, there was just this ever-present sense of fear. And as a, as a child, it's really difficult, um, you know, the, not just the fear, but the seeing, your, seeing the grown-ups be afraid, seeing your parents be stressed out or anxious, uh, and not knowing what's going to happen next is particularly difficult for children. And um, I will say, though, on the, on the bright side, my twin brother and I were very lucky because we had a uh, special form of escape. As you know, I've told you in the past, um, we were amongst the only kids in the country to have a computer, and we learned how to program. And that, for us, was a way to have a way to create our own world you know, in software that, you know, that we could control and that followed the rules and that was predictable. And it's, that was an enormous comfort for us um, you know, to have that. And I would say it helped us get through. And, and you both founded a company called Code.org, which I believe you can access anywhere. I mean, do you have any advice for parents and children who are there right now trying to figure out how to pass the days and survive? It's hard. It's not my place to give advice, but I will say, if I can brag about my, my brother Hadi a bit, I mean, he has led that um, organization, Code.org, to have so much impact. And, you know, tens of millions of kids worldwide are now able to program. And, um, and it's, it is not just a skill that helps them think, but it also helps them cope. In Ukraine alone, six and a half million kids use Code.org, which out of a country of 44 million, that's a large number. And um, you know, and having that escape is, is, I'm sure, comforting to them. I do also want to. I think it's we need to mention that this is not the only unjust war going on right now. You know, war is terrible, and, and it really needs to stop. Mm -hmm. But there are also kids coding in Iraq, which has been you know occupied by the U.S. for 20 years now, and there are kids coding on Code.org in Yemen, which is being bombed as we speak. And those are wars that I don't think Americans support either, um, but they're wars that our government has been supporting. And the sad thing is that these kids are innocent, regardless of their skin color or how they were born or where they were born. It's you know, and it's not fair for them to have to pay some price uh, because of these wars. Now, I know one of the most important things to you has been to find tech talent, no matter who they are or where they are, and give them the tools to succeed, which is what you're doing at NEO. And you have launched this new accelerator. What is the goal here, and how will it work in the context of other opportunities that exist in the tech industry? Yeah, well, you know, uh, I mean, my own path was, uh, you know, very much the American dream in that. I came to America with not very much other than the ability to program, and that enabled me you know, to have this power to create. And being able to, to program means you can create apps and even build a company. And in, in my case, I started a company when I was 23 and became successful. And um, today, uh, uh, kids who are graduating from college with that ability have the potential to create the, um, the epochal companies of the future. And we've created, we've just announced this program, uh, Neo Accelerator, which is aiming specifically for relatively young engineering leaders, uh, you know, one to four years out of college who want to start companies and to give them both financial support and mentorship 
to help them build great startups. And it's a, it's a program that is a, a three-month program that includes uh, a four-week-long retreat in Oregon to kick it off, where um, founders of companies will live under the same roof alongside each other and mentors. Um, and it'll culminate at the end of the program with a, uh, a pitch day, not to raise more money, but to pitch other engineers, to pitch um, software engineers to join your team to help you with recruiting, because that's the, one of the toughest problems facing all companies today. Now, it's been described as the anti-YC, a reference to Y Combinator, which is a long-established accelerator in Silicon Valley that has been operating here for years. What do you think YC is doing wrong, and how will Neo do some of those things differently? So Y Combinator is an incredible and amazing organization. And um, I have, it's, it's incredibly inspiring. I would say it's not an exaggeration to say it's one of the most impactful organizations of the 21st century, if you look at all the amazing companies they've spawned. And I, I don't think they're doing something wrong. It's that as the startup world has expanded and become more and more vibrant, um, there's room for different, um, you know, for different investors to support different types of companies. And Y Combinator's primary uh, focus or the, the culmination of their program is to help with fundraising. And it appeals to companies who are struggling with fundraising. You know, and as access to capital has become, um, you know, capital has become more and more abundant in the last couple of years, it hasn't been equally distributed. There are some companies for whom it's really easy to raise funds, and that's you know, uh, just less relevant to them. And there's others for whom it's more difficult. So Y Combinator today has, um, has really shifted to focus on emerging markets, uh, very large and lucrative opportunity helping countries from Africa, Latin America, et cetera, get access to capital. And it's an amazing business, uh, which is doing really great work. It is less relevant than it used to be for, uh, for top engineers who are perhaps graduating from American universities or graduating from American tech companies like Google or Stripe or Microsoft and starting companies because for them, uh, they don't need help with raising money. They, you know, it's so easy for them to raise money these days. They need help with other things. And so we're tailoring a program to help them with the things that are their challenges. Well, we are excited to watch you try to or start a new chapter in Silicon Valley history. Ali Partovi, CEO of NEO, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your personal story Thanks. as well. I appreciate it. Coming up, how crypto exchanges can navigate the war. We're going to be joined by CoinShares to talk about crypto exchanges responsibility as sanctions keep piling on Russia and if cryptocurrencies can truly be regarded as a safe haven. That's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. 
And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. After plunging at the start of the Russian attack on Ukraine, cryptocurrencies have reasserted themselves as a refuge in recent days. But after Bitcoin rallied more than 16% over the last two days, it's starting to lose some steam as the possibility of expanding sanctions has been raised to prevent Russians from using cryptocurrencies as a work around restrictions. I want to bring in my next guest to talk about this and much more, Melton Demirs. The Chief Strategy Officer at CoinShares, Melton, what do you make of all of this back and forth and up and down? Is Bitcoin really a safe haven or not? Yeah, it's it's great to be here. I wish it were under better circumstances. I think this has been a, a really interesting few weeks. Um, not only do we have this conflict happening in Western Europe and Eastern Europe, but we also recently had um, the Canadian truckers and their access to the banking system getting, getting cut off, um, which again was an instance where there was a lot of conversation around Bitcoin, around cryptocurrency. At the end of the day, I think what we're seeing here is a growing awareness around the world that for the first time, people, right? Right, citizens who really are the victims of wars that are, are fought by superpowers, they have a, a choice. Um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are non-political global money. And again, we're seeing not only an increase in trading activity in Ukraine and Russia, but also a lot of the trading activities coming from the U.S. as people are looking at what's unfolding around the world. And maybe this is the start of this Bitcoin no longer being a risk on asset, but potentially over time becoming a risk-off asset. Now, a couple of weeks is really not enough time for that thesis to play out. But I think in the coming months, in the coming years, we're certainly going to be able to have a lot more data that allows us to more definitively prove that relationship holds over time. Now, crypto exchanges have said they'll comply with sanctions but not do a blanket ban on all Russian users. What do you make of how they're navigating this? And can they uh, really differentiate between Russian tycoons, if you will, and everyday mm. Russians? Yeah, absolutely. And look, that's a great question. Um, in 2018 is when we saw FinCEN um, and, and Treasury issue the first uh, sanction against a Bitcoin wallet address. Now, one of the interesting challenges here is a Bitcoin wallet address is just a string of characters. You can attach it to a person, although there are a lot of tools that allow us to, to do that. And obviously, anytime um, you want to interact with a legacy financial system, mean, meaning fiat currencies, which is the money we spend and use, that's the money that oligarchs and tycoons have to use to buy fuel for their jets and their yachts, um, you're interacting typically with a financial institution, which will do a lot of background checks and gather data on who you are. Now, at the end of the day, I think the stance that many exchanges have taken is they're going to comply with the rules as they're written. And at the end of the day, private citizens in Ukraine and Russia and any part of the world that are not subject to blanket sanctions should be allowed to use these platforms just as they have in the past. And again, anyone who is the subject of an official sanction, any Anyone who's on an OFAC list will be blocked. Now, what happens in the decentralized side of this is obviously much more challenging to control. But at the end of the day, it's very difficult to move millions, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars and move them in and out of crypto without touching a legacy financial institution. So again, it's really at those endpoints where we're touching cash. The control is, is going to be happening. 
Now, after raising almost $47 million in donation via cryptocurrency, Ukraine has been so crypto forward and, you know, accessing all of these new technology. Some of these things would be unheard of here <laughs> right. in the United States. They said they would airdrop rewards to those who contributed, though. Then they uh, said they were they're canceling that, but they're now talking about auctioning off NFTs. What do you make of their use and exploration of these new technologies? Look, I think it's absolutely incredible. Over 35,000 different wallet addresses have given close to $50 million in direct aid to the government of Ukraine. And in real time, right, with settlement to this wallet address that's owned by the Ukrainian government. Now, in contrast, the country has raised $270 million in war bonds and received $350 million in military aid from the U.S. So while $50 million is not a huge number, it's a sizable uh, number that can really make a difference. Now, what's really cool about this to me is anyone in the world could give money. This is non-political global money that's transferred on the internet. So anyone with an internet connection, whether they live in Africa, whether they live in Southeast Asia, whether they live in the US, they can send money either via an intermediary or directly via their own wallet. And I think that's really exciting. Um, it brings a lot of transparency as well in terms of where the donations are going. We're not shipping pallets of cash into these countries, which is what's been done in the past. And these conflicts, but we're able to confirm with certainty that these funds are going to go to the government. And what's really exciting is in a matter of hours, a decentralized exchange protocol called Uniswap actually was able to spin up a really cool new product that would allow people to convert any token into a donation that would send directly to the Ukrainian government. So the fact that we can do this in hours, I think is incredible. The fact that the crypto community has mobilized around this, I think is incredibly exciting. And again, I think Ukraine's embrace of this is acknowledgement that the world is supporting the people of Ukraine. The world wants to help. And whether they get a token or an NFT indicating their support, we buy things all the time. People buy poppies on Remembrance Day. People buy bumper stickers to de de denote their support of specific causes. In the digital world, right, on the internet, um, we might buy NFTs or we might donate to get a digital token that indicates our support of a cause. Well, I appreciate your enthusiasm in helping us put all of this into context. It has been amazing to watch the way that Ukraine has taken advantage of this new technology and how the world has responded. Meltem Demir is Chief Strategy Officer at CoinShares. Thank you for joining us. Shares of electric pickup maker Rivian dropping to another record low Thursday after the startup U-turned on a decision to raise prices for pre-order customers. The backtrack just 48 hours after the company first announced it would boost the price of its R1T pickup by 17% and its R1S SUV by 20%. Joining us now, Ed Ludlow, who covers Rivian. Ed, where do we stand now? Are the prices rising or not? Yeah, so the prices are rising if you make an order today. So anyone that was a pre-order customer or put their order in before March the 1st will pay the original prices. You know, there were a number of cancellations. I spoke with Rivian. They wouldn't tell me how many, but you can find a number of upset customers on Twitter. So... You know, when they first launched this product, the, the price of the pickup truck, for example, was $67,500. If you ordered before March the 1st at any time in the last couple of years, you'll pay that price. But going forward, as an example, the R1T, you're paying 17% more, almost $80,000. It's a big jump. 
I still don't understand why they thought they could raise the prices on people who had ordered something, you know, potentially as much as many as two years ago. But okay, I mean, there right. is some broader significance here beyond customers being upset, which I do yeah. understand. Talk to us about why this really matters. Well, it's a great point. You saw that quote there from the CEO, RJ Scarringe. He wrote this letter to customers basically saying that this is supply problems, right? Semiconductor shortage, rising input costs. Look at what's happening in global commodities markets. They had to do something, but they just got it wrong in the way they went about it, making it relevant to pre-order customers. Remember, this is a company that had the sixth biggest IPO in history. It has billions of dollars on its balance sheet at its disposal, but it's years away from profitability, years away from being cash flow positive. So this really matters. You know, uh, Joe Spack at RBC calculated that by backtracking, they're, they're leaving about $850 million of potential revenue on the table when you take into account the worst case scenario of cancellation. So this is really meaningful, but it's a classic hiccup for a company that's grown really big, really fast, but isn't really building that many trucks yet. How do you think the higher prices will impact demand, Ed, quickly? Great question. Because we don't know who they're competing with, right? Which Are they going after Tesla? Well, Tesla has lower price points. Are they going after the premium segment or trying to go to traditional pickup buyers? Remember, you know, Rivian kind of bills itself as the Patagonia of the EV world for adventurers, explorers. So this is a question going forward, how relevant these products will be with customers. All right. Ed Ludlow, thanks for bringing us that story. We'll see how that continues to fall out. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We're going to be joined tomorrow by Jesse Powell, CEO Kraken himself, to talk about the rise in crypto during the war, the impact of sanctions and their approach. You don't want to miss that conversation. He's been pretty active on Twitter about this. We'll be back with that tomorrow. I'm Emily Chang. This is Bloomberg.